Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Mr. Bogomilski, I have your Quintus in my briefcase. It's okay. But I don't have it with me. Okay. Um, today's Wednesday and it's Chafov. And it's the 75th yard site of the Rebbe's father. Um, and I understand that they made phone calls. <laughs> I'm assuming that's why there are more people here. But for those who don't know, we learn here every day of the week, except for Wednesdays in Mitzvah Today is Wednesday. It's an exception. But during the year, we learn every day about Wednesday here in Beit Medesh Hashem. So you should always feel invited. Okay, today is the 75th yard site of the Rebbe's father. And of course, everybody knows the story. The Rebbe's father became the Rob of Yekaterinus, the Nepe Petros, in Tofrei Samartes in 1909. I just saw a Chabad video where they write that he became the Rob of Yekaterinus in 1920. So my first reaction was it's a mistake. Now, I don't know why they said 1920. The lady was up for 30 years, from 1909 to 1939. But in the beginning, he shared the Rabbonus. There was another Rav. Eventually, that other Rav left, and it became the Blevitz Rabbonus. And I'm thinking that's why they said that, but I don't know. The, the, the Rebbe's father became Rav in 1909. And um, <laughs> the Rebbe's father's father, the Rebbe's grandfather, his name was Abba Shneir. His name was actually originally Shneir Zalman. But he married a, a woman, a girl, whose father's name was also Shneir Zalman. And you're not, in Tzazan Tzavos, you're not supposed to marry a girl whose father has the same name as you, or a, a boy who has a mother with the same name as you. So you have to add a name. So he added the name Baruch. So he became Baruch Neir Zalman, and somehow over time it became Baruch Neir. The Rebbe's father's father was originally named Shneir Zalman. He married uh, Itkin, I think, maybe wrong, a very famous name. And uh, because his shver, his father-in-law, has the same name as him, you know what? I'll tell you what it was. Uh, Shmot, I think. I don't know. Chaiken. Oh, you see, two mistakes. Strike two. Chaiken. And because his shver had the same name as him, he added the name Baruch, and the Zalman sort of fell away. So the Baruch Shneir was a big chosset. And he was a Gavaldika god. He was a grandson of the Tzamech Tzedek. He was literally a grandson of Tzemach He was a great-grandson of the Tzemach He was a very, very big god and a very big chassid and a very friendly Yudel Chitrik describes in his Rishimis. Spending time around him. He was pushing a yid full of life. This is Ablevik's father. He kept a journal. He kept a journal. The journal consisted of his visits to Lubavitch. That's it. It wasn't a journal that described what he ate for breakfast or even what he learned that day. The journal was a description of what happened in Lubavitch. He gave this journal as a gift to the Friya de Gerebe in the 20s, when he was a very old man. I don't know uh, when he passed away, but he was older than the Rebbe Rashad. He was older than the Friya de Gerebe's father by quite a few years. Anyway, he gave the Friya de Gerebe a journal. And I, the, I don't know what the schus is. The Gemara says, This journal from the Rebbe's grandfather has been printed twice. There are two different prints of it with different notes that are both wonderful. And one of the things he writes in this journal was, the Barashne writes to himself, he said, I never had a job. The Barashne never worked. We have in Chazal what's called Aniyam Bnei Toivim, right? It was called Kupas Lishkas Chashoyim. In the times of the Beis Amikdash, it was a Kupa Chashoyim that was secret to support Aniyam Bnei Toivim. People like the Rebbe's grandfather were higher people, they were not regular folk. And they, they either had positions as Rabbonim or Rashi Yeshiva. Or they sat on a table of Allah Voida and they lived by some miracle. Either they were supported by their wife or their wife's family or by their children. The Rebbe Rashab himself, the Rebbe Rashab himself used to give the Rebbe's grandfather money as a hobby for eleven. It's printed in this journal. And one of the things that Barashneh writes is, for my sons, the Rebbe found jobs. <laughs> for me, I'm without a job. He writes this in his journal, for my sons, the Rebbe Rebbe had a younger brother. I think his name was Harav Shmuel. There was more than one. There was Shmuel and there was Mendel. One of the two brothers, they married two sisters. Rebbe Tzuchana's sister married one of Rebbe Levi's brothers. And the Rebbe Rashab got them both jobs as Rabbanus. And the Barashneir says, for me, the Rebbe didn't find a job. And to be very frank, he did him the biggest favor in the universe. Because Rabbanus Beklal and Rabbanus then, especially, 
it was no, <laughs> it was nothing to write off. You'd almost rather be unemployed than have such a position. Reblevik became a Rav at the, right before the beginning of World War I, and his entire Rabbonus, his entire Rabbonus was racked with Tzadus, with Gefelech Tzadus, smaller Tzadus, bigger Tzadus, and even bigger Tzadus. And of course, when the communists came to power and they took over in the south, Reblevik was from the Amudah Atavah, he was the greatest Rav in all of the Ukraine, and he stood at the helm of the resistance to the Soviets. And what the Soviets did was they would come into a city and they would immediately identify any building and property that belonged to the public, but particularly belonged to religion, and they would confiscate it. And then they would go after the clergy personally. And the premise was that they're not working, that they're unemployed. And if you didn't have work, you didn't have an apartment, you understand? And of course, if you work, you have to work six days a week, and the day off wasn't Shabbos. And a lot of Rabbanim left. They couldn't deal with those Nisraelis, they left. And that's what happened, that's what the Friedrich Rebbe writes, in that vacuum, he had no choice but to step in, because it's, it's, it's the job of Rabbanim to stand and fight for Yiddishkeit, that Rabbanim left. They say, I, I didn't see this in print, but they say that the Chofetz Chaim, Chofetz Chaim left Russia. And he said, you can't live in Russia. And then years later, when he saw what the Friedrich Rebbe accomplished, he made a statement to the effect that the Lubavitcher Rebbe did what I thought was impossible. Um, and Ablevik was the Rav in Yekaterinoslav, the Nepe Petrovsk, for 30 years. And he was a Rav with an unbelievable going. He was a Schneerz. And he didn't, he, he was very smart, and he was very tactful about how he approached his Rabonis. But he was not a man that retreated from the times and the challenges that he faced. The Rebbe described, the Rebbe says, I was the oldest son, he says, I was the oldest son of the Rav in the city where I live. And frequently because of who I was, I was called in for cross-examination. And the Rebbe said this publicly. And if I wasn't afraid of them, I'm not afraid of him. Somebody threatened the Rebbe. So the Rebbe said, if I wasn't afraid of them, I'm certainly not afraid of him. This is a, it's a, it's a famous sikha from the Rebbe. A person, somebody who was bothering the Rebbe, threatening the Rebbe. But anyway, one of the stories which is known, Harav Ashkenazi from Parchabad heard the story from his cousin, Nochem Goldschmidt, that the Rabbonim in the Ukraine were invited by the Soviet regime for a meeting of Rabbonim in Kharkov. All the Rabbonim in, the, in the, the province, in the state of the Ukraine, that was part of the then Union of Socialist Republics, Soviet Socialist Republics, were invited to a meeting. And the purpose of this meeting was the government wanted to pressure the Rabbonim that they should sign notes that there's no Kfir Sadas. There's no uh, religious persecution, religious coercion. So Reb Nochem tells the story that they had a yeshiva in Kharkiv at that time. And the head of the yeshiva was a chassid whose name was Rebel Kurnitz, had a famous chassid. And he heard that the Mechutn from the Rebbe the Rebbe was already married to the Rebbe. The Mechutn of the Rebbe is here. So he found out where the Blavik was staying and he invited him to come to the yeshiva. I mean, exactly what kind of yeshiva you think they had? It was in an attic of some base of Medish, they probably ate Bachrim. It was all on the run. And the Blavik came in and he sat down. He started talking to them first in Nigla. They didn't understand what he was saying, so he started speaking Kabbalah. So Nochem says, He knew me because I was a local. I was from. He was my Rav, Nochem Goldschmidt, was from Yekaterinoslav. So he sat down next to him, and they schmoozed a little bit, and then they got up to leave. So Reb Nochem accompanied him back to his hotel, where he was staying. And of course, because he was there by official business, the government provided him with accommodations. He walked into this hotel room, it was absolutely tiny. It was a bed and a table, nothing else. Reb Leivik sat down on the chair, and he was exhausted. Reb Nochem saw that he was completely exhausted. So Reb Nochem said to Reb Leivik, I should have to lay down. And Reb Leivik said, Vi kenech zich leidni, ich weiss nicht wer ge leidni in dem bed. Reb Leivik said, how can I sleep on this bed? I don't know who slept here before me. Meaning, say, he hadn't laid his head in a bed the whole time that he was in Chalkin, he slept in a chair. And then Reb Leivik said to Reb Nochem, Du weiss was ich bin do? Do you know why I'm here, man? I'm, I'm Thank you, mommy. Thank you very much. The Vesel, you know why I'm here? So the Nochem said, no, I don't know why I'm here. So the Blavik said, to tell them why. That the government is pressuring the Rabbonim in, in, in the Ukraine to sign a collective document 
to the effect that there is no religious persecution in the Ukraine. So Reb Leivik is now talking to Reb Noch, but he's really talking to himself, but out loud. He says, maybe I should sign. If I'll sign the document, then maybe they'll see that as an expression of goodwill and they'll back off a little bit. But maybe I shouldn't sign, because maybe signing is just walking straight into their trap, because after we sign the document, the persecution will first begin. And Reb Nochem watches Reb Leivik out loud, from God, but deep, muse back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. It was a serious, serious, serious question. Suddenly Reb Leivik gets up, and he says, I will not sign. It doesn't matter what they do to me, I will not sign the piece of paper. And Reb Nochem, who witnessed this, when he told over the story, he says, I saw Schneers. The, the boldness, the courage that it took to take that position was extraordinary. And Reb Leivik was a real Rav. I mean, there's a lot to tell, but from what we know, the Rebbe's parents had incredible chen. The Rebbe's parents, his father and his mother, had extraordinary chen. By the way, the Rebbe, I mean, the people in this room who are older than I can know this better than I. The Rebbe had unbelievable chen. The Rebbe was an incredibly... I mean, it's such a silly thing to say about a Rebbe. A Rebbe is a lakuz. But the Rebbe had an incredible chen. His parents had extraordinary chen. I told you this last time that Steinsalz, writes that he feels bad for people who never had Yechidus. Because the Rebbe you met in Yechidus was a different person than the person you met in Bob. And he tries to describe the, the pleasantness and the sweetness and the sense of being embraced that you felt, he describes his own experience, that you felt that you, when you were in the Rebbe's Dalai Lama's. Anyway, the Rebbe's parents had incredible chaim. Because of this, they were very, very liked. Even by people who were ideologically their arch enemies. In other words, even people who in terms of Ashkofer were 180 degrees opposite. They were communists, they were Zionists, they were Yiddishists, they were anarchists. You know, <laughs> you put the word Jew, which is finished with is. <laughs> Jews are isms, so <laughs> it's our personality. We're agitators, we're troublemakers, yeah. But in any case, but they loved him personally. They loved him personally. And it's conceivable <laughs> that Badera Chateva, the reason he lasted as long as he lasted, most of the were arrested earlier, was because people Poshet protected him. The story of Ablevik's Mesidus Nefesh has to do with Matzah, as you know. And of course, the Rebbe, our Rebbe, told the story many times. He told the story many times. The story with the Matzah, the Rebbe told them often, and also the story with the ink. The Rebbe told often. The story with the matzah, I want to start with, the, with the, something that I heard from the Rebbe. I've looked for it since, and I couldn't find it in the Hanukkah, but I remember the Rebbe saying it, and you know, I don't trust my memory, but this one I think I actually did hear. That the Rebbe said that of all the Tayyab mitzvahs in the Tayyab, why did my father make his Ikir matzah? Of all the Tayyab mitzvahs in the Tayyab, why did my father choose that his mitzvah should be matzah. And the Rebbe answered his own question. He said, because matzah has to do with the munah. Matzah has to do with the munah. And he said that my father understood that under those conditions, that every yid in Russia should have all tayyad mitzvahs was simply very, very difficult. So at least they should have the mitzvah which nourishes the munah, they should have it the way it's supposed to be. And every single year, Rebbe Leivik went to bat for matzah. The details of the history, there are people who know the technical side of history much better than I. I don't know all the technicalities. The Friedrich Rebbe was always raising money for matzah. Every single year the Rebbe raised money to send matzah into Russia. So it's hard to know what years the matzah came from out of the country and what years the Friedrich the Leivik made the matzah within Russia, or perhaps they both happened at the same time, but I, I think they're different years. Every single year, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe's father commissioned the government to give him wheat from Matzah. Now, all the wheat in Russia, all the flour in Russia was chametz because they bleached it. So you had to have a special order to get the flour, get wheat, and then flour, which was untouched. And the Rebbe had a, a, a series of appointees, people who were his majgichim, as the Rebbe called it, who oversaw the process. And the government was very irritated, was very agitated by the Rebbe's insistence and every year he would commission them, and every year he would fight, and he would ask, and they would give, reluctantly. Um, there was a, a guy in Russia named Kalinin. He's a very big part of Chabad history. Kalinin was the president of Russia. 
He was an eccentric, he was a funny kind of guy, but he was not, he didn't have any hate in him. Kalinin? Kalinin. And he helped a lot of people in a lot of real ways. The Blavik went to him. And Kalinin wrote a note supporting the effort of providing in, in, in the Ukraine with Master. Now Kalinin was a sacred cow. I don't know if Vostik events on Yiches, but they never touched him. But they held it against the Blavik. One year there was a double idiot that they finally agreed to give him flat wheat, which was unbleached. And they sent a wagon load of this wheat, and the wagon had a leak. A leak. And it rained in. And the wheat became chametz. And Ablevik had to ask for a second wagon load. And this was till here, you understand? And this is the story that I ever told, that he went to Kalinin, and he got him to give him new wheat under the specifications of Arav Shneir, Son, and Hizmar Gichin. And from what I get, this was the final nail on the Rebbe's father was arrested right before Pesach, Tafrej Tzavikas, 1930. He was exactly 30 years. From Samachtes, from 1909 to 1939, was his Nabonis, and he was arrested. And the Rebbe's mother describes her panic. She didn't even know where he was. Lord Ablevik wrote an essay, which begins, Ani Levi Yitzchak Ben Zelda. He wrote it himself. It's about a page, page and a half, where he describes what happened to him, that he was in six <coughs> different prisons, but he was in one prison twice. So he was in five different prisons, but in one of those prisons, they took him from one to another, and they brought him back to the first. <coughs> so he explains the whole thing, Apikabodah. Levi is the name of Gevura, and Yitzchak is the name of Gevura, and there are Hamisha Gevura. It's a whole husband Apikabodah, about his tzores, you understand? He was in jail about five or six months. I don't know exactly how long. And they push it, tortured him. They tortured him physically. I mean, they, they, the brutality of the Soviets is not a secret. They tortured him. I mean, Atke Dekach, everybody knows this. Somebody brought the Rebbe a picture of his father, and the Rebbe wrote on the back, my father, question mark. He didn't recognize his own, he didn't recognize his own father. We saw the picture of the Rebbe's father as the Rebbe remembered him, when in 1991, the Soviets gave up his fight. This was their tshuva. They gave the Rebbe his father. And I don't think, tshuva nachasruch. The Rebbe didn't get too much nachasruch from seeing that document. I can't imagine. It must have been so painful. I mean, we read it. We didn't read all of it. And you see how painful it is. But in that tick, there was a photograph of Rebbe Leivik. And they were fight from that picture. And you look at the two pictures, you see why the Rebbe would say, this can't possibly be my father. I mean, the, the difference between the before and after is only five years. It could be 50 years, the amount that he aged. Anyway, the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe's mother ran looking for him. She pushed wanted to bring him out because she knew that he would literally starve. And they wouldn't tell her where, she, where he was. I think she did get him matzah. I think, I'm not sure. Anyway, she did everything in her power to alleviate his tzadis. And uh, the bottom line is he was sentenced to five years in Golos because of his uh, counter-revolutionary activities, but it was retroactive, which meant to say that it started from the time he was arrested and not from the time that he was deported. So it finished exactly five years later, right before Pesach of 1944. And of course, we all know the stories. Again, these are stories that they never repeated many times. How the Blavik didn't have any sort of, the Blavik had nothing. From what we know, the Blavik was a copious writer. The Blavik's father wrote an enormous amount of Hodesh that he had entire bookcases of notebooks um, in, in, in the file that they gave the Rebbe in the summer of 1990 to 91 he was written that they confiscated all these notebooks they saw they had no use for them and they burned them that's what it says the Rebbe himself our Rebbe said in the Sicha after that was after the Rebbe saw that document my father had works of him and maybe we'll find them so that's what the Rebbe said. And the Rebbe certainly saw what I saw. I read it in the Kfar Chabad magazine that they collected these manuscripts. They saw that it was bookcases, bookshelves full of notebooks. The Rebbe's mother brought a few swords. She brought a, a Chumish and a Zoyar, three Krachum of Zoyar, and some volumes of Mishnah, and I think that's it. And the Rebbe's father would learn to head off and call Valpeh. And he would write notes. And this is the notes that we have. That the rabbits, and he didn't even have a pen, he didn't have ink. So the rabbits went around in the field. I don't know how she got that idea, 
And she pushed it, collected suds, you know, berries and very colorful flowers. And she made ink out of it. I, I don't know how you learned that uh, on, the jo- on the fly, but she made it. And she made it kind of a pen and he used to write. They've been mefarsim, they've showed you the originals. And you see the colors that she used, pink and bright orange, whatever colors of flowers she was able to find, she was reading. And the Rebbe's father used to write to the Jadena. These traditions she brought with her. People make mistakes. She brought them with her. She brought these traditions with her from Russia. Maybe some came later, but the Ruba the Ruba, the Swarim that her husband wrote and she carried with her. There's a lady in Montreal whose name was Yurkowitz. I don't know who she was from home. If somebody knows, you can tell. Huh? Unit. She traveled with the Rebbe's mother. And the only thing on her mind was that the ink shouldn't fade before she gets this photo to her son. That's what she kept her worry as they were leaving Russia was that the ink shouldn't fade before the Rebbe will be able to lay his eyes on them. And of course, these Svodim came here. She had great Mercedes Nefesh to make an Ablavik's life manageable during this very difficult time. Um, and of course, eventually, the Rebbe published them. The Rebbe waited 20 years. In 1970 and the Rebbe began to print his father's Kodesh Yitayla. And um, a brief history, when the Rebbe came to so when the Rebbe came to America in 1941, <coughs> the Friedrich Rebbe put him in charge, gave him four jobs, as the Rebbe himself describes in a letter which he wrote to Greenland. One of the jobs that Rebbe was given was Kohos, to print Sifri Xizis. And the Rebbe had to raise the money for that himself. Friedrich Rebbe raised the money for Americans. And the Rebbe raised the money for Kohos. And as soon as he had a Fidal, he printed a Kuntres Asifri. In every single one of these publications, the Rebbe signs his name. In each one of the publications from Kohas, in the beginning there's a Psachdover, there's a title page, or a, for, you can't call it a forward, an introduction. And the Rebbe writes a short little note about what this uh, Kuntres entails, and he would sign his name, Harav, and then his first name, Shnis. When the Rebbe first became a Rebbe, he continued this practice of every publication that came from Kohas, would have a Psach Dover, uh, an introduction, and they would sign Harav and his first name. By 1955-56, Tezvav Tezayin, that changes already. Because apparently until then, the Rebbe used to look over everything himself. And when he tr- entrusted it to others, and Rechlau, anything that comes from Kohas has big achrayis, a huge achrayis, the Rebbe takes achrayis. But instead of the Rebbe signing his name, it would say, Marechas Eitzel Achasim. It was signed, done by a person, by the editorial board of Eitzel HaChassidim. Who's Madachas Eitzel HaChassidim? On some level, it was always the Rebbe. It was labeled Groner, so it was Aral Chitrik, and then later on, it was many other people. Madachas Eitzel HaChassidim. But when the Rebbe printed his father's Svarim, he signs his own name. Any Sefer that came out from the Rebbe's father, it begins, Thank God, it reached me a great and wonderful course. The writings of my father. And he never published them. And they never signed his name. In 1991, in the summer, they found a Psakuntris, I think a Mesechtigitin, and it came out in a little pamphlet. And even then, they never signed his own name. The Psalm that they never gave out from his own father were always personal. It was not Merkiz, it was not Gohas, it was him. And the Rebbe used to sign his own name. And of course, after the Rebbe published his father's Svarim, it became a regular feature of every Fabrenga. Every single Fabrenga, the Rebbe spoke a Rashi. But in addition, every single Fabrenga, the Rebbe spoke a meaning from his father's Torah. In the beginning, the Rebbe spoke his father's Biyuda Mantanya. The Blavik wrote Biyuda Mantanya, not a lot. I mean, not a lot, it's a very relative thing. It's a little booklet. But the Rebbe's father wrote in code. He didn't write like a normal person writes. So a little booklet of the Rebbe's Ksavim is a big book like this of an ordinary man. And in the beginning, the Rebbe spoke on the orders of his father and Doyat, especially on the Gerasa children. From the late 60s into the early 70s, the Rebbe himself was very preoccupied with the Gerasa children. And for a period, a, a, a meshach of that's man, 
I think he spoke on every single one of his father's notes on the Yerusha Tshuva Asiha, and a lot of them are actually When the Rebbe finished speaking on the Ha'odas of his father on Tanya, he began to speak of his, the Ha'odas of his father on Zaya. And there are three, two volumes, I think. There's one Kra of the Yudi, and then the other one is on Bamid Babayika, I think, Shmaiz and Yikabu I think. It's two volumes, I could be wrong. The Rebbe's father wrote on the margins of the Svadim. So the Rebbe used to say always, my father wrote very concisely, maybe because he couldn't afford to write it in long hand, he didn't have the space, and he trusted that we'll first of all understand what he means, and more importantly, and this of course is the world of our Rebbe, that we'll figure out on our own what is the Hirah from this in Avedis Hashem. What's the lesson in Avedis Hashem? And every week for more than 25 years, the Rebbe spoke Azoyah. The Zayah was, he would be Matiyah a piece of Zayah, and then his father's commentary, and then the Rebbe would explain it. Sometimes it was very brief, mamish, a minute or two or three. Sometimes it could be even half an hour. And uh, these things came out in Kroch, and they gave out Tevas Menachem. You know, the name that they use today for the Rebbe's Svodim is Tedas Menachem. Tedas Menachem is a shame, is a name of Svodim that the Rebbe approved. And the first use of this name, Tedas Menachem, was when they printed the Rebbe's father's Ha'odas and Zayah. The Hanukkah Golahak gave out a krach, Tedas Menachem, the Kutlev Yitzchok, the Yudam, the Kutlev Yitzchok, and And in that krach, I think, they printed the new picture that they found of the Rebbe's father, or could be it was on Shmois, and the Rebbe allowed them, first of all, to use the name Teres Menachem, which is the name that they use now for all the of the Rebbe, the unable of the Teres Menachem, and he also allowed them to put a seal of Kohos. A seal of Kohos, on, on Sikhs of the Rebbe that are unedited, the Rebbe allowed them to put a seal of Kohos. The first time that happened was when they printed the Rebbe, the Sikhs of the Rebbe on his father's Torah. Now, what happens as well, I, I, I don't know very much about Zayar, and I'm going to assume that you know less than I. Uh, I'm going to assume, actually, based on many. But the, the way the Zayar works is, Bereshit and Shmois is very, very big. But you commit with one of them is much smaller. And I, I think the reason is because the people who compile the Zayar organize the Zayar. In other words, the, the, the Seder and the Zayar we have, the words are Rashbi's words, but where they were placed was done by a copyist. So they put all the Zayas in Reish Hashemais. There are certain passages in Tvarim that there's no Zoya. There's only Raya Mehemne. Raya Mehemne, for those who do not know, this is the Sefer HaMitzvah in the Zayas. The Raya Mehemne is the Zayas Sefer HaMitzvah. In certain passages in Tvarim, you only have Raya Mehemne. So the Rebbe would say, and I remember this, that there's no Zoya in this Pasha. So there's no Beyuda for my father in this Pasha. But, <laughs> and he would go someplace else, either into another place in Zoya or into the Rebbe's father's Igris, and he would uh, speak every Shabbos in the room in his father. The one thing that we do have from the Torah of the Rebbe's father, which is in longhand, which is Variches, are the letters that he wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe and his father were separated for about 12 years. Not for about 12 years. From 19, yeah, from 1927, he passed away in 44. It's 17 years from now. Um, and the Rebbe's father used to write him letters, long letters. And the Rebbe used to write letters back. Now the letters the Rebbe wrote to his father, we don't yet have. I don't, the Rebbe apparently didn't say copies for himself of those letters, but they were not mitpasim. The letters that the Rebbe wrote to his father, we don't have. But the letters that his father wrote to him, the Rebbe saved, and he published them in a craft that's called Lekutin Levi Yitzchak Igris. And in these letters you see how the Rebbe's father's title looked would look if he wrote it out in longhand. And it's Mamish, it's Megillus, it's Megillus. I was a Bokhar once, and I used to have five. And so I, I that Kerach of Igris Kedish, this volume of the Friedrich, of the Rebbe's father's letters, you could read it through in and out. Why? Because every letter begins normal. It's, a, it's addressed to the Rebbe, and as soon as the Rebbe got married, it's addressed to the Rebbe and to the Rebbe. And the, the letters have dates. You know, Lafnissen. He always wrote them a letter for their birthdays. He always wrote them a letter for their birthdays. <laughs> and then, of course, you're Kislev. So the letters would start, you know, Taitel Hashem, Taitel for life, and giving them a brach, two or three lines. And then he would start talking about a subject. The apartment. 
in the apartment that we live in. Parenthesis. You have 20 pages of Kabbalah. At the end of the letter, the end of the parenthesis, and there's a few more words. So you just skip the Kabbalah. You can read the entire Kabbalah in half an hour. And one of the letters that I remember very distinctly that ever sent his father shoes. So you have a regular introduction to a letter, and then it says Hana Olim, parenthesis, 20 pages, and the parenthesis, Heim Toivim. <laughs> the shoes are good, they fit. <laughs> but so you can read the entire Krach, minus the Kabbalah in 10 minutes. You have to just find the end of the parenthesis. This is the Rebbe's father. In any event, um, so he was arrested right before Pesach. And for months, he, he languished in prisons. And they tortured him, they physically tortured him. It's hard to understand, us Westerners, what it means, torture. Organized, governmentally sanctioned torture. It was brutal, it was evil. And eventually they sent him off to Alma, to Chile, a city someplace in Asia, where he would live for, for five years, including the time that he had been in jails. The Rebbe's mother immediately went to join him. And Bedera Khatava had saved both of their lives. Because had they been in Yekaterinoslav, they would have been, the Nazis came into the Nebuchadnezzar and they killed all the Yidin in that city as they did in many other places. The Rebbe had a brother whose name was Bel. There were the two brothers, it was Label, and Label. There was another brother whose name is Bel. I think his birthday is Yud Gimel Kisser. The Rebbe's Nechanen, the Rebbe's mother's journal, which is now in print, she has an entry on the date. I think it's Yud Gimel Kisser. Something, oh, you raised yourself? Today is the birthday of my son, Bell. I haven't had any words from him in over 10 years. I wonder what's become of him. I think it's better that I don't ask. It's an entry from the Rebbe's mother. He was not well. And he was in a sanitarium. He was in a home. In Yekaterinoslav. And the Rebbe's parents took care of him. The Rebbe left Russia. Label left Russia. So it was left to the parents to look after their son. And parenthetically, not so parenthetical. I mentioned to you that in 1990 or 91, um, they gave the Rebbe, they gave the Rebbe, the KGB gave out files to the descendants of all of the people that they had tortured and killed. It was an act of penance, it was an act of children. And some people say we were better off without those pieces, those documents. But they gave the Rebbe his father's file, the entire file. And I'm sure that Rebbe made the decisions, but a significant portion of it was published then, in the summer, I think it was Manalaf, I think, in the Kachabad magazine, which I read. I don't have access to inside information. It was published in Kachabad And in this, and now it's printed in, in, in the Sefer HaToldus Levi Yitzchak, Toldus Levi Yitzchak, which was made by a Yidnev Gatlin, who has now passed away, a Toldusi Gatlin. The Rebbe was very, he, the Rebbe was very appreciative. He, he prepared a whole bunch of stories on the Rebbe, the Rebbe took them all out. <laughs> but he printed the Rebbe's father's biography, first in one volume, and more recently in three volumes. You can buy a set of the Rebbe's father's uh, life. So it's printed here also. It was originally printed by that magazine. And what it described, they asked him all kinds of questions. And one of the questions that they asked the Rebbe was that you applied to leave Russia in the, in the early 20s, could be even 1920. And the grounds were that it was offered an abonus outside of Russia. This is a story, this is a story unto itself, that Yidin in Israel and in America would send invitations to prominent rabbonin in Russia to become Biarov in their community. And it saved their lives. Often there was no such city and there was no such community they didn't need for it all. A lot of the biggest Rabbana who survived Stalin, like Harav Zeru. How did Rabbi Zeru get out of Russia? And people of that ilk, of that caliber, of that Madrid, they sent invitations, official invitations to the Soviet Union asking Harav Zeru to become a Rav in some town, which in many cases Porsche did not exist on the map. And they would come to this guy Kalinin. Remember I mentioned you Kalinin. And they would camp out in front of his house and they would sometimes stay there for two or three days, day and night. And if he would walk out and you happened to be there, any paper you had he would sign. He'd been a mudlet. He was a strange man. And they would push it, sit and wait. And a lot of these very prominent people, including the Rabbi Chassidim, famous Chassidim, who left Russia in the 30s, this is how they got out. They were given invitations as an abundance. 
and then they would come and they would wait outside Kalinus's palace, wherever he lived in Moscow. And he would, whatever, if you were there and he walked out of his house, sometimes he could walk out every half an hour, sometimes he wouldn't see him for a week. Whatever you, whoever was he would sign in the gun. The Rebbe's parents had such uh, an initiative. And Rabbi Castell always tells me he was supposed to be the Rebbe of Boston. He was Boston in the United States. He was invited to be the chief rabbi of Boston. I don't know exactly what year. Why did it not happen? So they said to him, you put in papers and leave the country and then you change your mind. In other words, they saw this as his continued desire to undermine their revolution. He said, we, we decided not to go because they wouldn't let us take ourselves. The Rebbe's parents, the Rebbe said, when he was asked why they didn't leave Russia, if they had been given, they'd given the opportunity and the circumstance was there, he said, we didn't leave Russia because they would not allow us to take battle alone. Beryl was actually killed by the Nazis in Petrov. He was in a hospital and they would come to the doctors and say you have 24 hours to empty the hospital. And the doctors understood what that meant. But the Rebbe's mother wasn't there. She had gone off to be with the Rebbe's father. Uh, when they returned later, the house that they had lived in was occupied by some Goyim. Who Poshit used his sorim as firewood. Poshit used his sodium, it was so cold, they used his sodium, Poshit Kipshute as fire. <laughs> a lot of them were buried, and with it, on top of where they were buried, they built an apartment block, which stands there, at and maybe that's what the Rebbe means when he says one day we're going to find him. They, half of his life was Poshit buried under the ground, and they built a building on top of it. Um, anyway. Um, so the Rebbe's parents in some weird kind of way where their lives were spared from the Nazis because of what they paid for with the Soviets. He was released from his exile right before Pesach. And the, the way the story of course goes is that there was a law. Stalin made a law that anybody who was a prisoner of any type who was being held in jail or in exile whose time for, for departure came because of the war their sentence their sentence was lengthened until the end of the war you were not allowed to leave where you were until the war was over this is a classic Stalin move so the Rebbe his father should have stayed where he was the Chesidim in Almata apparently the Yadid Raskin particularly the Dabit Raskin they pushed risk their lives to give bribes his father should be an exception to this rule and they snuck him out of Chile and they brought him to Almata where he lived for the last five months of his life and he passed away. The Leivik and the Rebbe Sinchana. They came to Almata with nothing, with nothing. And nobody had anything. It wasn't like the other people had a lot. They got them an apartment and they had to push it, provide them with rent and food, keep shooting. They had nothing. Gorish. And the Anash and the Chesidim and the Basam Yidin who were there rallied around the Rebbe's parents and helped them as much as they could. There was a man whose name was Rabinovich, Rabinowitz. He wasn't even a Lubavitch. And in Gottlieb's biography of the Rebbe's father, he writes how the Rebbe Sanchana talked about how this person, whose name I don't remember, helped them so much personally, but she took care of them and looked after them and helped them and so on. There's a story with him and a shoifer, which I also forgot. They didn't have a shoifer, they took a walk on the train track and he found the shoifer and he brought it to the Levick, some kind of weird story like that. But anyway, they helped him push up the this. When the Rebbe's father came, he was only 64. And he was a Shneis. You know, in the Lakuta de Budim, it's written. In the Lakuta de Budim, it's written that the base Harav were all very, very strong. They're physically incredibly strong, except for the Rebbe himself, who suffered ill health because of Tzadus HaKlal. The Rebbe's, the, the Friedrich Rebbe described, he had a great, great uncle, the middle of the Rebbe's oldest son. It describes how physically strong they were. They were physically <laughs> physically strong. The Rebbe's father was a physically strong man. People describe how he did Hagbe. He would open up nine Yeriyas, which is, which, which, <laughs> they can clear up, but nine Yeriyas, you have to be so physically strong. And the same potatoes then, were not like say potatoes now, that are made from, come out the, the thinnest parchment, they were very heavy. It was a very physical, but they broke him. When the Rebbe was 64 years old, Considering his age and his natural health, he should have lived much, much more. And he passed away prematurely, partially from all of these little 
when he came, he was already ill. He was already sick. They brought a doctor. The doctor examined him. And we assumed that he had, you know what? And the doctor put him on a liquid diet. I mean, there was nothing they could do to cure him. But they could prolong his life a little bit longer and maybe make it a little less painful. So the doctor put him on a liquid diet. And the doctor sees matzah and moren and chareza and sinkatras. And why? It's a So he says to the Levick, you're not eating that. So the Levick answers him, that's not food. <laughs> And of course he had the Kadai's Matzah and the Kadai Dovazirei. And he got sicker over that summer and he passed away Chof Menachemov. The little stories that we know is that Shuas, he went to Shul and he spoke to the children, just like the Friyidik had ever did. He spoke to the kids who were in Shul, how many children they were. And he spoke to them that they had the future. And that the future of the Jewish people rests on their shoulders and the responsibility that they have and the power, the very powerful. Reb David Raskin was a little boy. He was in that shul. He heard that shmuz, that conversation. Um, he passed away Chaf Menachem. I have a couple of stories that I'm going to share. The first I heard from Mrs. Itkin. He used to come to these classes many years ago. She's at Askin from home. So she knew the story from her family. That there was an old... Dovid Raskin, all the thing his name was Mendy Raskin. I could be wrong. He lived later in England. And he was a bochum. For a bocha to be seen on the street in those days was very dangerous because they would immediately put you on the front. They'd be on the front and then come back. So he went to the Blavik, head of Tishabov, to bring food. Bring food for the Rebbe's parents, far faster than us, before the fast master. The Blavik was 11 days before he passed away. He was not in great shape. And the Blavik calls him over, this man will ask him, I'm talking to him all that. Blavik's talking to all that. Nobody understood a word, but he talked and talked and talked. And the mental state of head was at that. Respect he had, the Rechelet, the Blavik. The Rebbe Sanchanim walks in and says, We have to eat and he has to And the Levi keeps talking. He talked for hours. He talked into the night of Tisha Neither of them ate. Neither of them ate. And he didn't understand that word. Anyway, he comes home. It's already the night of Tisha His mother sees him. And she starts to cry and to hug him and to kiss him. They came to the house looking for him to take him to the front and saved his life. That's a true story. And the second story is that when the lady passed away, they printed a, in 1991, there was a magazine that came out called Beis And they printed an interview that they did in Russia then of an old woman whose name was Outways. I don't think she ever got married. She was from Mishpachas Altes, the famous family Altes. She was there in Almata when the Rebbe's parents came. And she became very attached to the Rebbe's parents. She was a girl. But you know what you're talking about? You know, Movis Bechaleinenu, you understand? You're talking about a time where death was for breakfast and for lunch and for supper. It's not a, it's hard to understand. Death was a regular dish. People were dying every day, all around. Very unpredictably. It was a terribly, terribly, terrible, terrible time. I don't know what word you can describe, use to adequately denote what's found 11 dozen during the war. They found a document from a little kid in Leningrad who kept a journal. This day my father died, this day my mother died. And he finishes the note by death, 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 everybody died. I was on English It was terrible. Leningrad, the Balkan, and so on. This was a little different, but still. So this girl walked into the Rebbe's parents' house and began to wail. She began to scream. And I'm sure she wasn't only crying for the Blavik. There was so much to cry about. And the Rebbe's, Chana, the Rebbe's mother turns to this kid and says to her, under those conditions at that moment, by Yidin Jews don't scream. She repeated the story almost 50 years later. Which meant that she didn't forget that story. Because that story went through and through. So now there's a story, which I, I, I forgot from whom I heard it. But some of it has been made public. There was in, in his, his niece. Mrs. Katz's mother was a Nimoite. The Zedek when Agri said, oh, Yosel Nimoite, and I, I, I went to see him. I was in Yekatinislav 31, I was in Nebuchadnezzar 31 years ago, Chafot. And we went to the scene of the Rebbe's father. 
It was mamish in the middle of a forest. The whole cemetery was a forest. I don't know how it is today, but it was mamish unbeloved. It was so neglected. So we went to see him. He should help us find it. Abrahalavatol. He had left Russia 20 years before. It didn't look the same. A kid said he 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 was very involved in his parents. And the way I understand the story, he pushed up, walked by when the Rebbe was dying. Mamish, hours before he passed, he was crying. And the Rebbe Tzanchana said to him, why are you crying? And he said, I'm not crying for myself, I'm crying for you. That I'm leaving you alone. There's a, they, they say that the hour before he passed, they saw him whispering, and then they heard him say, the Rebbe's father said to himself, time to think about going over to the other side. So a few days after his petita, I don't know how long, a person walked by the house where they were living and the Rebbe said, I knew it was sitting and crying. Because everybody came to the Rebbe. When the Rebbe passed, people pushed stopped coming around. So he, he pushed went into her and he said to her, why? She said, what do you mean? Until now, everybody was concerned with my husband, so I wrote his coattails. And now, who knows me? So he said to her, do you have any relatives that I could send you to? She says, yeah, I have relatives in Moscow. So he said, I'll send you to Moscow. And she says, I'm afraid to travel. But he, this guy, Yosel Mimoyden, had a lot of connections. One of his children tells the story in jail. I, I didn't make up the story. I promise you I didn't make it up. But I can't remember exactly from whom I heard it. He had all kinds of connections. Oh, I heard from Mrs. Katzman. I heard it from Mrs. Katzman. And he was able to actually get travel in the middle of the war by plane. And a family of four came to him and asked him to do what you needed to do to, to grease the correct gears and wheels. They wanted to go to Moscow. They didn't want to go by train. They wanted to go by plane. He says, okay, you can go, but you have to take an extra passenger. And they said, we don't want. He says, you don't want, you don't go. And they agreed, and they took the Rebbe's mother, I think before the war even ended, to a relative, a cousin, that lived in Moscow. And that's what I understand. And after the war, when this effort to get out using the Polish passports was initiated, Label Mushkin just passed now two weeks ago, he was, he was the last person who was involved in that effort to help 300 Meshbachas of Anash got out of Russia. Um, they, 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 they had the Rebbe's mother out. The Rebbe's mother, they say that Mumma Sari gave her her own papers. Her own papers, the Rebbe's mother got out. She was afraid. She was very afraid. She said, I can't, I want to travel legal. I don't want to travel uh, illegal. And they said to her, you're a Shneerson. You'll never get out of here. And she said, you're right, because I'm a Shneerson, I'm afraid to travel illegally in case I get caught. Anyway, they, she, she left. And she took with her the Ksavim of her father, her husband, and all kinds of Likaitich that she had, Biyarusha, Gondat, as far as the Tzemach Tzedek. She had a garden from Tzemach Tzedek, and she had a shaykh from the Rebbe Marash. Her, her father, her husband, was Bibiyuchas, and he had a lot of very precious artifacts, things. He had given, this is a huge story, he had given Yankov Yezid Raskin, or the David Raskin's father, a shaykh, to blow for him. I don't know, give him a shaykh. Rabbi Yankivesev had this shayfer. The Rebbe heard that Yankivesev had the shayfer from his father, and the Rebbe immediately wrote him a letter in which he says to him, I understand that you have something that belongs to me, be Yerusha. Now, I just want you to know that from a point of view of Allah, it's not so posh. Somebody once brought in a ksav, a manuscript of Chassidus to 770, for the Rebbe. When he opened up the front page, it said inside, Shnei Zaman Gurari. It belonged to him from before the war. So the Zalman Gerari said to the Rebbe, this is mine, it has my name in it. So the Rebbe said to him, Shaitan Mishnah says, that when you have a terrible flood, a deluge, then even with a sin in it, it's not yours. But when it came to the Shaifah, the Rebbe had different halachas, you know, there's different halachas when he takes, different halachas when he gives. The Rebbe wrote to the Agabes, I need the Shaifah. The Rebbe said, this is my Shaifah, I use it every year and so on. And the Rebbe said, it's mine. He got it before the first, I think he had Tisha Yudbeis, Rebbe had that shaykhah. It was a shaykhah from the Rebbe Maharash that his father had. And he sent him, instead of it, a tichel, a cloth, that had belonged to the Fiyidike Rebbe. That was the story. So the way they tell us, she was leaving Russia. She was very ill. And 
she was very weak and malnourished. She had everybody had dysentery. Who didn't have dysentery? And she was schlepping with all of these chafotzer. And at one point, so there were people helping her, but everybody else was busy. I mean, who had time to think of? You were trying to survive. And uh, she commented, if people knew what I had in these suitcases, they'd be quicker to help me. And then all of a sudden, people were rushing to help her. She, she made a distinction between the people who helped her ideologically and the people who helped her because they thought that somehow they're scoring points. And she carried these things with her. And of course, the Rebbe came to Europe to bring her to America. She was first in the DP camps. There are a number of people who we know helped them. I mentioned before Mrs. Jerkowitz and Mrs. Ushbaum yes, had a story that she physically pushed, took care of the Rebbe. She pushed it and washed her. She took care of her. And um, I heard this from her son that uh, when she came here the first time, she was there, Mrs. Chaikin. The Rebbe Chaikin, the Rebbe Chana said to her, I want you to come back today at 6. That was the time the Rebbe came to see his mother. So she told people that the Rebbe Chana said she should come at 6 o'clock. So they told her that's not possible because that's the time that the Rebbe comes. And the Rebbe never has anybody in the house when the Rebbe is there. She said, well, she told me to come. Anyway, she never walked in after she did. And I heard this with Alan Schmuggler, her, his, her son, that when she came into her, when the Rebbe Tzimushbal came into the Rebbe Tzimchana, she talked to her very maternally. She called her Tochterke. I don't know, he, he used all kinds of expressions. I actually wrote that down someplace. I have it in her photo. But when he, she referred to her very, very intimately, very personally. But when the Rebbe walked in, the Rebbe Tzimchana said that the Rebbe Abbasit the Rebbe when, when she talked to her in private, she talked to her like she was a daughter. And when the Rebbe walked in, she, Rebbe Sanchana said to the Rebbe, to her son, this is the Rebbe about whom I told you. And the Rebbe was always not to the people who helped um, his, his parents and his mother and so forth. And she, so she eventually came to France, and the Rebbe went to France this year in America, and apparently it wasn't so simple. Recently, our uh, Litvish Sharid was my father said, uh, 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 what, what's up? Not the Lubavitcher at all. That his father was a doctor. And he was, he was commissioned by the United States government. He apparently was a, uh, an officer in the war. And after the war, he was stationed in France. And he would, he would, he would, he would examine prospective immigrants. He says, one day a man came into him and said to him, and then my mama came to America, I came here to take my mother to America, and I would like you to help me accomplish this on Bittl Te'edeh. The Rebbe said to this Yid, I want you to help me get my to America without it costing me Bittl Te'edeh. But this doctor was a Frumer Yid and a Kalkbalen. He said, I met so many G'dayim, nobody said to me that he wants to do it without Bittl It moved him on Bittl Te'edeh. So he took care of the Rebbe's mother. She had something on her lungs. Which was, uh, which was in the Legend America or something like that. Because of the tuberculosis. And it, it, he made, whatever needed to be done, the Rebbe came to America. And this year, this doctor would occasionally show up in 770, and whenever he came, the Rebbe would spot him, and the Rebbe would bring him up with him on the Bimel as Akar Satev for helping the Rebbe's mother. Anyway, the Rebbe came to America, and then she lived with the Rebbe for all the years after. Um, and of course, the Rebbe did everything in the Chus in the merit of his father. Obviously, that year he died for the Yomit. There was a magazine which came out in those days, I'm talking too much, called Koivitz Lubavitch. Koivitz Lubavitch was a Yiddish publication that was meant to keep Chassidim all over the world connected. And in the issue of Koivitz Lubavitch that came out that month, or that quarter, the Friedrich Rebbe himself wrote a note, it was written anonymously, that and they said the Rebbe's name received word that his father, Levik, passed away. Originally they wrote the date of Gimel Menachem because they didn't have the right date. Later they found out that the Rebbe's father's judgment was Chafram. And every year the Rebbe and Fabrengin and the Siyan Sechter, even before the Friedrich passed away, in the memory of his father, and after his father passed away, this was a regular Seder, that the Rebbe made a Fabrengin for Chafram. And the entire Fabrenian was a hazard. I mean, it was Nigla. It was a Lundish Fabrenian. The Rebbe spoke in Nigla. And people used to come from all over New York to hear the Rebbe talk. There was a lot to listen to. The Rebbe would make a CM every year in the discourse of his father. It would go on for hours and hours and hours. The, I saw in the Rishima and the Sikhim when the Rebbe said 
Chait is a nigla nacht. That's what we call it. It's a night of nigla. Because on the day of your time, the ikir is the siyamisen. One of the things that I want to talk to is this. That, uh, in Tavshin Yud Gimel, I think, 1953, which is only, it's, 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 what, it's the third Chafav after the Nebuchadnezzar Chafav was on Shabbos. Now, later on, the Nebuchadnezzar would speak Nigla on Shabbos like as if it was a mitzvah. But a moment excitement to speak Nigla on Shabbos was considered a great Aveda. So the Nebuchadnezzar Hadden, I think, on the Sechter Rosh Hashanah, I think. But the Hadden is a very chsidish Hadden. If I'm not mistaken, it's a very, it's a very the Hadden is almost, we can call it chsidish. But that Fabrenian begins with the following word, it was Shabbos. That Fabrenian begins with the Sikh is printed, that's how I know it. It begins with the following word that the Rebbe said. And the Rebbe would say this many times later, but he said it then. That it says in the Sefer Magid Meshoyim that the base Yasef was supposed to be Makadah Shemesh Magrab. He was given the opportunity, this host, that it would be Mesh Hashem. And then he did something. That the Fiyad of the Madrig of the Beis Yasef was not the Fiyad and they took away that schus from him. And then he was Ma'ilach Yom. Beis Yasef was very, very long. And he wrote the Beis Yasef on the Torah in his own Shulchan Aruch and the Kesef Mishnah and the Rambam and so on. In other words, because he lived long, he wrote Svarim, and not Stamazay Svarim, Svarim that called Beis Yisrael Nishan Olein. Svarim of the Beis Yasef, everybody, Svarim and Ashkenazim, lean on the Beis Yasef, till Mashiach so the Rebbe said, if a person lost a schus, and in losing that schus was able to write these svarim, this proves that that schus is even greater than the schus of writing the Shulchan And the Rebbe added another deal. You see, this Nebuch Kiddush Hashem is a personal lineage. Writing a Sefer that all Yidin can lean on is a collective thing. So you have to say that Mesidus Nebuch Kiddush Hashem is a bigger schus for the Rabbin for the whole Klal Yisrael and the opportunity to write such svarim. The Rebbe said this on Shabbos Chavov and it was very clear um, why the Rebbe was saying it. He was talking about his father, why the Rebbe was saying it. And then of course, like I said, there was a, 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 a Tavshin Chav Dalad was the 20th Yod site. And it was the last Yod site that the Rebbe's mother was here in the world. Rabbi Shmuelu tells the story that he, how he got in is another detail, but he was there, that Fabrengen. Oh, it was Mamish weeks before she passed away. She, passed away. she would have Chassidim come to her house a few times a year to make a Fabrengen in her house. So she walked into the door. The people who came to that Fabrengen. By that Fabrengen, she described the last days of her husband's life. It was almost intuitive. She Fabrengen, the things she spoke about what happened to her at the end of her husband's life. And when she walked into the door, she said this. She said that, in my life, I have seen a lot of great people. She said, my husband, my father. I, she saw many videos. But somebody as great as my son, she used to call him the Zun, the Zun, I never saw. And boy, another thing is he carries his greatness with such a simplicity. She once told uh, Battle Eunuch, he says, <laughs> I'm not saying it because I'm his mother, I'm saying it because it's the truth. And then Pashas Neach, the following year, a few, a few weeks later, the Rebbe began to say Rashi Sichis. And he said that Rashi Sichis in the merit of his mother. So at first he did it only for a year, then he stopped. And then a few weeks later, the Yidin of Gibetan, somebody asked, and the Rebbe agreed to reconvene the Raji Sikhis, which will continue until, until the Rebbe lost the Rebbe in Chayimushka, and whatever, that's a little bit of a story. Um, but Shmuel said that he was standing by that Fabrengen. And when the Rebbe started to speak with Rashi the first time, what did the Rebbe say? The Rebbe said that the Rashi is a Pirish for a Ben Chomish Lemikr, for a Fagirot. And it dawned on him what he had heard some, whatever it was, close two months earlier from the Rebbe's mother about the Rebbe. That the greatness of the Rebbe is carried with such a passion. So we gathered together here to Fabrengen about the Rebbe's father. I told you stories, that's all I did, yeah? Um, this is our connection to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe gets Nachas Roch. They saw, they have a video this year about a Yid, from a Yid, 
who was in the administration of Ford. He was a political scientist. He was a professor of political science. And he worked with President Gerald Ford. He was president for two years. Sahak. And he was on a trip when they went to the Soviet Union to discuss uh, disarmament. You know, that uh, Nixon started it and Ford continued it. I forgot what they called him. Anybody remember what they called him? Uh, they had a name. You remember the disarmament pact. They talked about freezing nuclear production and so on. And they met in Russia. He went along, and before he went along, he went into the Rebbe and told the Rebbe he's going to Russia with the diplomatic community. And the Rebbe told him to go to as many places as possible. And then the Rebbe asked him, is he going to be in Almaty? Is he going to be in Almaty? So he said to the Rebbe, well, he's going to be in, I forgot the name of the city, someplace in Siberia. And that the way back from Siberia to Moscow, you have to pass through Almaty. Which I don't understand the geography, but that's what he said. So the Rebbe said to him, my father is there. Like, and I cannot go to be Mishtateh I'm not able to do it. So I'm asking you if you could stop in Almata, you would do me a personal favor. When he came back, he had again Yechid for the Rebbe, and the Yechid started with this. And the Rebbe said to him, You did something for me which was not able to do myself. And he says, It was very, very moving the way the Rebbe thanked him. He says, The Rebbe was more emotional than I was. And then he says, but the Rebbe very quickly, he showed incredible for what he had done, quickly moved on to business, which was Rebbe went through every city that he visited and talked to him about what was going on in all of these places. Okay, I'm the Gula Shleiman. We want Mashiach now. Okay, good morning to everybody. Thank you. It was called Salt.